Welcome to Streetside Talks, where in each episode we'll be speaking to the key individuals that are improving the UK's streets and cities through innovative and transformative projects and initiatives. My name is Richard Lambert and I'm the urban lead at Fair City, a London-based city transport think tank who want to promote more accessible, equitable and sustainable cities. For the second episode in our Streetside Talks series, I'm delighted to be joined by Isabel Clement, the director of disabled cycling charity Wheels for Wellbeing. Founded in 2007, the charity exists to increase awareness of the fact that disabled people can and do cycle, while it aims to influence cycle infrastructure, facilities and representation to ensure that everyone can access the wide-ranging benefits of cycling. Isabel has been the charity's director since 2011 and has used this time to forge strong working relationships with both Transport for London and the Department for Transport while her advocacy work sees her a regular feature across both national and local media, including the BBC and Guardian newspaper. This year, the UK government has set out a bold vision for the future of cycling, which includes the creation of Active Travel England and a supporting £2 billion funding stream, which aspires to mobilise a range of walking and cycling initiatives. With these changes in mind, Isabel and I will be discussing the organisation's important role in campaigning, their guide to inclusive cycling, and the increasing impact that Wheels for Wellbeing is having both in the UK and internationally. Welcome Isabel, great to have you with us and could you let us know where you're joining us from? Yes, hello, I'm joining you from uh, Leafy Streatham in South London. Very nice, I'm, I'm down in Brighton so we're not too far away from each other really. Um, so just to start us off, it'd be good to get a bit of background about Wheels for Wellbeing and yourself. So you've been the director of Wheels for Wellbeing for nearly a decade now, and no doubt you've seen a lot of changes in that time, some of which we'll get onto later. But how did you first hear about inclusive cycling and why did you decide to get involved? I uh, got involved a little bit unwittingly, uh, back actually at the very uh, inception of Wills Wellbeing in 2006 7, uh, because I had the pleasure to uh, know the lady who created Wills Wellbeing, uh, the lady called Janet Pask. So I got involved with uh, what was then, I didn't know it as inclusive cycling, I knew it as uh, Janet wanting to create a charity. Uh, to uh, support disabled people to get into cycling here in South London. I also was somebody who, as it turns out, was already a disabled cyclist, but I didn't know that. I, all I had was uh, uh, something which turned my wheelchair into something a little bit more all-terrain uh, to be able to keep up with my child in the park. Uh, and um, I really didn't see it as cycling, but clearly Janet already had me uh, marked as somebody with uh, in uh, inclusive cycling potential, uh, but she didn't say so. Uh, but anyway, as I got more and more involved with the, uh, the background of the, the sort of the charity, you know, governance and, and um, charity reports and accounts and that fundraising, that sort of stuff, I then, to, I, I then got to think a lot more about it and also to meet uh, other dis disabled people who cycled. And that's how I got sort of more and more sort of uh, grabbed by the whole idea. How important was your journey into cycling with regards to you becoming part of Wheels for Wellbeing? At the beginning, really, it was uh, an aside, I think. It was more my experience as a, a, a person uh, used to managing charities uh, in, my, in my day job and also uh, being a disabled person and bringing the lived experience of, of a disabled person into the organisation. 
as I say, my cycling then was not even a, a conscious thing. It was just a, a, a case of uh, a, having a, an aid to my mobility. My journey into cycling has been way more influential in terms of the way I've then in the last decade taken the organisation uh, into a, a more of a, a policy and advocacy um, direction. Uh, and, and my personal journey into cycling in that context has been, an, I think, uh, a, a really key element of, uh, of the development of the organisation uh, in its sort of, in its second, the second half of its life. <laughs> and uh, Wills for Wellbeing are recognised as being the UK's kind of leading campaigning organisation on behalf of disabled cyclists. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what the organisation does and what makes it different to similar organisations? We do two main things, and one of the two things we do is similar to uh, a number of other organisations in, in the UK. Uh, we are, so on the one hand, and that's our original, um, that's what started us off, we are uh, a provider of uh, cycling opportunities for disabled people. And that's very much what Janet was creating back in 2006. Um, uh, it was about uh, the fact that it was about tackling the first barrier to cycling for so many disabled people, which is they've not got access uh, to the kit, to the cycles, to even be able to uh, realise that cycling is a possibility at all. So uh, we uh, are a provider of opportunities for, for disabled people to go somewhere where cycles and uh, people to support them getting onto those cycles exist and it's away from traffic. And uh, so that, that's, that's the, the first thing we do. And, and that's where we are in direct contact with a number of who, the people I call the furthest away from cycling, uh, people who have no access to the kit and also who are likely to have had very little experience uh, prior to coming to us uh, of uh, getting moving, getting the fun of cycling, experiencing the, the fun and the buzz of cycling. So we do that at uh, three places in South London, and um, we're we're yeah we're supporters of um, about a thousand plus disabled people each year who come to us and and get that buzz, and 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 a lot of them keep coming to us and come on a regular basis. The other part of the organisation is is the unique thing that we do, uh, and and that's to uh, be the voice of disabled people who cycle. We're uh, people who are, through our experience, uh, able to articulate, I guess, uh, what uh, the, the barriers are for disabled people to cycle and what the, how important it is for us uh, to be able to uh, influence and uh, reshape the way cycling has been organised and has been uh, represented, etc., uh, in order that we can share the, the the experience that we have of the the, the impact that cycling has on our lives uh, with many many more disabled people, and and the fact that we are disabled people who cycle, uh, sort of reshaping the narrative around cycling, uh, I think that is crucial. And um, there are, for the moment, not many other organisations out there who are led by. Uh, disabled people who have the experience of cycling. I just want to pick up on one one other point. So there's something called the social model of disability that seems to play a central role uh, with wellbeing's cause. 
Can you explain a bit about what this means and why it's so important? Oh, absolutely. That, that's a fundamental part of, of uh, what makes us uh, who we are. Uh, we um, work to the social model of disability, and, and that is, um, uh, it sounds a bit grand, and it's something that was, um, or a bit sort of um, theoretical and, and uh, academic, and, and I'll, I'll try and <laughs> make it sound a lot more simple. Um, we uh, disabled people in, um, I think it's in the 70s, um, particularly in America and in the UK, and I'm sure in other places, started to reframe the way disability was talked about. Uh, in, you know, until then, disability was very much, well, it's, it's, it's something that's wrong with you, uh, you disabled person, you have a disability because you your your legs don't work or or you have a disability because you can't see and that is your that is you being disabled you are who you are and your body doesn't do certain things therefore you are disabled disabled people kind of reframed uh, that whole um narrative by saying hang on a minute i am actually disabled by the way society responds to who i am so we very much um, work in cycling from the social model of disability. If you say to, to somebody, well, of course you can't cycle because your legs don't go well enough to be able to push on the pedals or your feet can't stay on the pedals. That's where the conversation stops. You can't cycle. But we're saying, hang on a minute, it's, cycling is, is, is not reduced to uh, pedals and balancing. Of course, cycle, cycling can be done in other ways. So... The fact that I can't cycle, and actually, personally, that was my experience. I was I was given a bicycle uh, by my parents when I was ten, and no, my feet couldn't stay on the pedals, and I couldn't balance, so I couldn't cycle. And in my head, I that's where I stayed with. That's what I stayed with: the fact that I could not cycle. And all it was is I couldn't cycle yet because I hadn't realised. My parents didn't know that there were such things as hand cycles or potentially a recumbent trike at the time might have worked. And that's what we mean by the social model of disability is do, do not think one dimensionally. Think about the, the fact that somebody can't do something isn't to do with them and their body. It's, be, it's the way that we are assuming that things are done and the way that technology or, or support is provided in a very limited kind of a way. So we like to we like to reframe the I can't cycle is to I can't cycle yet. And it's not limited to disabled people. Parents say, oh, we can't cycle now because we've got a child, we've got to buy a car. And it's not you can't cycle, it's you can't cycle in the way you used to maybe, or you haven't realised that they were cargo bikes or you can't afford a cargo bike. But it's not, that doesn't mean you can't cycle. It means you can't cycle on a bicycle I think that's really important. I think what you said there, talking about how anyone can enjoy cycling, given the right equipment, the right support and the right environment. And I like, it's interesting how you extrapolated that out from obviously looking at disability and uh, as part of inclusive cycling, but actually inclusive and accessible cycling encompasses the whole of society. And it needs to be framed in that way as well, because there's so many areas of society that feel like they, they can't cycle. And that's because like you said, due to the way society has uh, push them away from it and, and they don't feel they can do that so I think that again shows how it's, it really affects ev everyone in that sense or, or your role your 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 kind of work can actually impact everyone there's that argument isn't there that if you create a city for 
the most vulnerable for the elderly or the youngest, then you're creating it for everyone can use it. Um, that's exactly right and, and that's that's the point about accessibility in in all aspects of life not not just about cycling is make society accessible to disabled people mm. and you've actually made it accessible to all because you've thought of all sorts of different ways that we could be organized as a society and and really the only reason people a lot of people are excluded is is because we are thinking either lazily or just you know we're not thinking we're not putting our creativity to ensuring that design, planning, um, uh, the organisation of our lives is inclusive. Um, and and that's, that's absolutely crucial. As we've said, you're based in London, but your work impacts people not only across the rest of the UK, uh, but increasingly in other countries across the globe as well. For you, what does an international inclusive cycling city look like? Every, obviously, every city approaches things slightly differently, but... Um, are the principles that we talk about, which is to, to think outside of the one dimensional view of cycling uh, is something that can be applied uh, anywhere in the world. An inclusive cycling city is about um, a city where everybody can uh, use cycling as a mode of motion, transport, leisure, health enhancing <laughs> activity, etc. It needs to have thought about um, accessibility to all cycles and all cyclists and really I don't think it's that difficult um, it's just that we we need to re-educate the way people think about about cycling so uh, an inclusive cycling city is a is a, is a city that it is in, that is inclusive of all kinds of people on all kinds of cycles and I, I think that's the the simplest way I can put it and that means it needs to plan its cycling uh, and walking infrastructure, I guess, um, in with with an open mind and with uh, putting the priority on uh, enabling the movement of everyone. And and once it's back to that social model of the of of, of disability, social model of cycling, basically, of saying uh, we will provide for um, all types of cycles, which means we will provide wide and step-free and um, uh, easily understandable infrastructure for yeah for, for, for all types of, of mobility equipment to go around and that then uh, opens up of course not just the, the city to disable people on cycles but also parents on cycles with their little kids in their cargo bikes yeah, so that's that, that's really interesting when you the way you've framed there what an inclusive cycling city could look like I mean a lot of people talk about the Netherlands and, and Amsterdam often as being kind of the, the, the guide or in terms of looking at the most accessible, inclusive uh, cycling city. I mean, and uh, often it's talked about there's being more bikes than people there, for example. So obviously cycling is a big part of their culture and what have you. And I, I know you've been uh, you've, you've kind of said previously that the fact that Amsterdam and the Netherlands is, is it has very inclusive and accessible cycling. It was almost by accident. Um, and uh, obviously that maybe is because they've created a, a place that's inclusive for everybody to, to cycle. I mean, and, and then that includes everyone in the way, the description you just made there. Um, do you think something like that could, could happen within the UK or within cities in the UK? I hope it can happen. I think it's quite, um, it's going to take quite a bit of, in, of, of, it might take a bit of time, quite a bit of investment because we have to undo a lot of the car dominated um, um, 
way our streets are, are organized um, and reclaim some of that space uh, for, um, for, for you know, active mobility and therefore for cycles. Um, but it, it, there's nothing to stop it happening. I mean, in, as, far as, as far as I understand the history of, of uh, uh, cycling in, in the Netherlands, it's, it, it wasn't a, a ready-made um, situation. It had to be fought for back in the 70s and, and, and space reclaimed, so it can be done. It needs political will and it needs investment. But uh, not only would it would it enable disabled people more disabled people to cycle, but as I was saying, it, it would enable more parents, but also crucially uh, re uh, adjusting the way we transport goods as well, and and enabling more uh, transport of goods and and people by cycle. Um, so it's absolutely crucial in my mind that it's it is done. Um, you know, not only for fair social fairness, but also for the planet and and the um, decarbonisation agenda, etc., which which you know the country is committed to. So I think it can be done, and it has to be done. Well, I think you've really highlighted there both the challenge to the UK in creating more inclusive and accessible cycling, but also the huge opportunities that it could bring as well. Um, so I mean, moving on now, the coronavirus pandemic has affected cities across the globe and has in fact led to the cycling being turned to as a tool of choice for both city authorities and national governments, including here in the UK. As a result, there's been some headline catching cycling policy released by the Department for Transport, including their gear change report. However, another important piece of policy that has been long in the making is the DFT's local transport note 120 something you yourself have re referred to as a good point in history. Can you tell us what the report is and explain why it's so important in the context of inclusive cycling? So gear change and the LTN 120. So gear change is the, is the, the, the policy document and, and LTN 120 is the sort of technical guidance which goes alongside it. They, they happen to have been launched at the same time, but LT, LTN 120 had been in the making for a good two years bef beforehand, we were, as an organisation, invited to take to be to be part of the stakeholder strategic group invited by the Department for Transport, and we were thrilled to be invited at the table uh, because the, the LTN 120 is basically the new go-to document. The, the, it's not a set of standards, which we are sad about. Sad about. We we really want uh, government to set standards for cycle design, but it is a set of guidelines and. Infrastructure is one of the main barriers to uh, disabled people using uh, non-standard cycles to get about. So influencing the shape of the, the uh, infrastructure uh, around the UK for cycling was really crucial for us. Um, so we are absolutely thrilled uh, about the fact that um, now the principle of accessibility and the the is fully represented in the guidance, the national guidance uh, for cycle design uh, in the UK. And that, that I think for, well, for Wales Wellbeing uh, is, is an, uh, we feel it's a huge achievement on our part. We will claim that achievement um, because un until then, even if some people might've heard of disabled people cycling, etc., it was, a, it, it really had no, uh, weight. There was no way designers, planners, etc., had anywhere uh, to work to, any document to work to. That said, you have to pro you have to 
uh, work, you have to do your job in uh, by thinking of the fact that there are all types of cycles and all types of cyclists out there for you to, to, to provide for. And, and now that is what, what this LTN 120 says to uh, people who design for cycles is uh, the dimensions of cycles are uh, all are, are, are varied, uh, the, the, the types of cyclists are varied and you need to take into account some key design aspects. So, and, and um, so the, the fact that this is said in the national guidance is fantastic. And gear change, the policy document, um, refers throughout it uh, to the fact that, uh, again, um, cycling is going to be provided from now on in an accessible way. Until then, uh, you know, every document, official document that we turned to, uh, we, we noticed and we pointed out how in, inaccessible um, or in, how non-inclusive they were being. Uh, and now we, we don't have to do that with the national <laughs> guidance and the national policy documents. We can, we can point to them as examples of good practice. And we really are hopeful that from here on to, uh, you know, 2020 is the start of a reset button being pushed. From what you say there, it, it sounds pretty transformative from your point of view and from Wales for Wellbeing's point of view. Um, what is the significance for you of the inclusion of the cycle design vehicle in LTN 120 and can you explain what it means? That's absolutely crucial. The cycle design vehicle sounds like a really weird concept uh, but basically people who design uh, roads for example are already uh, they have to to work to a design vehicle which is basically you know, a road is going to have to be available for usable by, uh, you know, from the tiniest little car to the largest big huge lorry. You know, for cycling, the assumption was always that the, the, the people were designing to the bicycle. So why would you worry about a concept of a cycle design vehicle? But actually, we over the last few years, uh, since about sort of 2013-14, we've been uh, talking with people who are involved in um, uh, drafting guidance and guidelines, etc., with government, and that's where we came across the whole concept of a, of a design vehicle. And that gave us then the ability to then say, ha that's what we need to change for cycling. If there is such a thing, we need to change the, the dimension of that design vehicle so that all the people who create the really crucial infrastructure for us to cycle and drive down, they need to stop thinking about the bicycle because if they think only about the bicycle, then the tricycle, the hand cycle, um, the cargo bike, uh, the, 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 cycle, the bicycle with a trailer behind it cannot get through unless it's been planned for all of us with all of us in mind. Um, and that's what the cycle design vehicle is all about. And that's a huge step forward. Um, and uh, I hope <laughs> that from here on, nobody will be building a piece of cycle infrastructure for just the bicycle, because that is not what is asked of them now. They are asked to uh, use the cycle design vehicle as their, uh, I guess, their footprint, their wheel print on, on that bit of infrastructure. I, I want to talk now a bit about uh, the Guide to Inclusive Cycling, which is one of uh, Wheels for Wellbeing's best-known pieces of work. This is the first kind of comprehensive guide to inclusive cycling anywhere in the world, which is part, part policy document, part user manual. 
um, and was recently described as your Bible by one of the charity's trustees. Uh, the first edition was launched in 2017, while the fourth edition will be released this month, uh, December 2020. Can you tell us a bit about what the guide is and how it can be used? It's a bit of a mix of a guide. It's, uh, it sets out the our thinking in, in a way what I've just described so far in this podcast, where, where why we talk about inclusive cycling, uh, you know, how, how we've got to start reshaping this narrative. So it gives a bit of, of background about that. And then it talks about, from the experience of disabled cyclists, what are the barriers that a disabled cyclists experience uh, on, on, in, in, their, in their lives? Um, and, and how we know that is obviously from our personal experience as cyclists who run this organization, but also from surveys that we run. We're, I think, the only um, uh, organization that puts out a survey more or less every year uh, aimed at disabled people who cycle and aimed at gathering their views. And, and we ask every time, what are your top, what is, what is your top barrier to cycling? And infra, you know, infrastructure, the cost of equipment, the lack of recognition of the fact that disabled people cycle always come up as the three top um, barriers. So we explain those barriers in the guide and we, um, we put a lot of pictures uh, because we know that people don't have in their minds, what does it look like to be, you know, to, to be cycling? Uh, what are these all different types of cyclists, cycles and cyclists? Then we go into a bit of a step-by-step -step guide of uh, what are the key aspects of cycling, uh, the inclusive cycling infrastructure, inclusive, cycling facilities etc and, and and we unpick all of that what the guide isn't is it is not a full uh, design guidance but uh, now and, and the reason we are re-launching uh, it this month um, uh, next month even in in December um, the reason we're relaunching the, the guide is that um, no sooner had we uh, done the latest edition at the end of uh, the 2019 um, that you know, this year, LTN 120 has come out and therefore all our little references pointing to bits of um, uh, government um, documentation, etc. were all abandoned and replaced by LTN 120. So we absolutely wanted to make sure that our, our guide was still up to date now that the context around this has changed and has improved with this one big document for uh, cycle guidance. And so we've asked the lovely people at Fair City to work with us to actually do a very detailed bit of work, which was to identify, you know, exactly the bits of LTN 120, which um, uh, supported our uh, recommendations. So every time there is a recommendation in our guide, which is supported by LTN 120, we've actually got at the bottom of the page, the reference to, to the design guide. So hopefully our guide to inclusive cycling is uh, able to provide the context and uh, good example, examples of good practice, but also point directly for those who want the technical detail to uh, the UK government guidance with uh, the nitty gritty uh, bits of, of, of um, explanation about um, how, how to build inc uh, inclusive infrastructure.
So it sounds it sounds like as well as kind of updating the guide in terms of reference to LTM 120, there's also going to be changes in terms of it being refreshed in terms of its design, making it more accessible and inclusive in that way as well. Yes, the look and feel of the uh, guide is changing. It's um, uh, it's just being made slightly uh, easier on the eye, uh, easier to read, and more consistent in terms of uh, its its graphic design. Um, so yeah, new new refreshed look as well as um, refreshed uh, references pointing to the particularly to LTU one hundred twenty. And on that point, surely the biggest endorsement of the Wheels Wellbeing's work has been the inclusion of so many of the intrusive guys recommendations in LTM 120 as you've been mentioning. However, there remains a lot to still to do. Uh, could you provide us with a specific example of a recommendation that wasn't picked up in LTN 120, which you consider to be important for the development of inclusive cycling? So, you know, recognizing, yes, absolutely, loads has gone in and we're very chuffed with that. But one particular weakness we, f- we are finding uh, is a lot of issues around um, vis- visuals and uh, representation are not actually uh, picked up by the guidance and um, not 100% sure why that is. So a-, a glaring example is the fact that though they have uh, gone with the cycle design vehicle and represented a lot of different cycles in, um, uh, in, the, in the guide, throughout the guidance, there's a massive gap uh, because they forgot to include any representation of a hand cycle for the whole uh, huge document. Um, there's not a single hand cycle in, in there. That, and we provided, uh, we did actually a photo shoot uh, for them. And um, uh, I was on my hand cycle in that photo shoot. So and they had plenty of examples. So we're not too sure whether it was well, I can't believe it was deliberate, but it's a shame because, uh, you know, we, as we keep saying, people need to keep seeing different pictures of different uh, types of cycles in order to really get it into their, um, into, into their subconscious, really, all the types of cycles that they're designing for. Logos, logos representing cycles should not be the, the one bicy- you know, bicycle sign. Actually quite fun in Lambeth, they've just experimented with a, a, a new uh, logo uh, of, a, of a hand cyclist, which I'm very happy about. Uh, but that's not yet a legal way of signalising um, cycles. Um, and also we talk about uh, something that we feel is really important is um, visual contrast of the uh, surface of cycle lane cycle tracks so if you go to the Netherlands you know it's a cycle track because it's red or orangey red uh, and they're all the, they're all that color so pedestrians know that it's a cycle track as a cyclist you know it's a cycle track our, our walking and cycling and driving environments should be visually very obvious. As we get, all get older, uh, we lose uh, some of our sight, our sight becomes less precise. So whether or not we're an official disabled person, visually impaired, or we simply you know, going through the natural aging process, we will see you know, not as precisely. We need our environment to be very, very clear to us and legible. So we feel that's a weakness of LTN 120. Uh, and well, hopefully it'll be a, a regularly updated document and, and we'll pick that up with them at the, at the next edit, hopefully. Now, moving into the last section of the podcast, we're going to talk a bit more about the future. Though the publication of LTM 120 represents meaningful progress for inclusive cycling, it is certainly not a panacea and many big challenges remain. 
What do you consider the immediate challenges to be which the organisation will continue to campaign for? Yes, I think there are a, a good number of challenges ahead still. Sadly, our work is not finished, but we will continue to uh, be pushing. Well, first, we really, really believe that uh, the wonderful guidelines which are in LTN 120 ought to become standards, legally enforceable standards. I know this is fraught with all sorts of difficulties, but we never really got to the to the bottom of, of, of to as to really understanding why uh, and the fact that um, these are not legally enforceable standards means that all sorts of people all in all sorts of situations for all sorts of reasons will not be uh, implementing the, 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 the guidelines as uh, you know minimum um, guidance the, the minimum standards so that means that people who are cycling for uh, you know on, on any kind of uh, non-standard cycle who are not cycling on a bicycle will continue to face um, issues. I mean a really good example is um, bar physical barriers, chicanes, um, A-frames, all sorts of contraptions they are definitely clearly uh, mentioned in the in the guide in LTN 120 as uh, really shouldn't shouldn't be used. Um, but if that's not legally enforced, uh, you know, legally, legally enforceable, uh, as or uh, if that's if that's guidance is not um, law, um, then we're going to continue to see these um, terrible contraptions appear all over the place. And that's a huge area of, of uh, campaigning for us and others. Um, so we will continue to push for uh, things to be actually in law. Um, so that's that's going to continue into the future. The other thing is that we are um, and, and there isn't anywhere that we can see whether it's in gear change, the policy document or, or anywhere else, um, a requirement for local authorities uh, to uh, all have inclusive cycling hubs. As I explained earlier in, in, in the podcast, uh, places for disabled people to have the opportunity to, um, to try out cycling. And we feel that that's an absolutely crucial part of the uh, cycling ecosystem that needs to be available to everyone. It shouldn't be a, 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 a postcode lottery as to whether you have an inclusive cycling hub in your local area or, or not. And that's not that. Well, that is in order that all the people who who experience barriers to cycling, whether they be officially a disabled person or, or simply somebody who who, for whatever reason, uh, does not feel or, or, or has not been able to experience cycling, uh, can have somewhere to uh, try out cycling and to meet other people who cycle and to really grow into uh, somebody who feels that they, they are at a stage where they can start um, to, to take off on, on the cycling journey. All the, the services around cycling need to continue to be pushed to become inclusive. So for example, uh, cycle hire, cycle hire provision, a lot of it happens in the private sector, but also a lot of it happens in the public sector. Uh, there is in, the, in this country such a thing as a public sector equality duty. Uh, and if you provide a publicly funded service, it should be uh, available to all. And um, cycle hire, you know, the Santander cycle hire scheme in London, and then there's many others around the, the big cities in the UK, um, generally only provide uh, two-wheeled non-electric assist bicycles. 
whether they're on docking systems or docking stations, or now there are private sector um, uh, dockless um, setups, etc. They're all bicycle. Um, and we need to start seeing these uh, services which are provided to help people access cycling uh, easily and affordably, etc., without having to purchase an, a cycle and, and have it at home, etc. Um, we need to see these things become accessible. And, and as it happens, <laughs> uh, we at Wheels Wellbeing are about to start trialing, uh, uh, developing a, a, an inclusive cycle hire scheme for London in partnership with another inclusive cycling provider in London called BikeWorks. Um, and that's extremely exciting. We hope we can prove the concept and then we hope we can show the way to not only TfL but other cities in, in the UK. So there's, there's plenty more to be done uh, for us in the future. We will continue to, to suggest to training bodies in, who, have, who train the professionals around uh, uh, cycling that they should be training their uh, trainees uh, in inclusive cycling, not just cycling as, as they always have done. Uh, so the professions are equipped for the future to, to bring us all inclusive cycling. Um, we will uh, also continue to do something we've been doing more and more over the last sort of couple of years. And it, that is for us as a disability and cycling organisation to be engaging even more with other disability organisations, non-cycling organisations, to support the disability sector to better understand how cycling is uh, potentially a transformational um, means of uh, accessing transport, but also simply independence and um, fitness and leisure, etc., for all disabled people. Because I think as, as a, a disability sector, we might not have been as good as we could be at promoting active travel and advocating for the accessibility of acting travel, active travel for all disabled people. So we've got a lot of very exciting work to do for the future. Uh, we do hope eventually to become redundant and, and, and for the UK to become, an, you know, for inclusive cycling in the UK to become an obvious thing that everybody gets and everybody's able to access and all the professionals know that that's what they need to be doing. I think that's a little way off um, and we look forward to uh, all, all sorts of new uh, exciting partnerships with, uh, with, with uh, people out there. Could you explain a bit about My Cycle, My Mobility Aid campaign and what, what that means and why it's important for you moving forward as an organisation? Oh, absolutely. This is a campaign we've been um, running for a little while and we will continue to run for, for, for as long as it needs to be. And that's um, something that is obvious to us as disabled people who cycle, but obviously isn't to the rest of the world. And it's the fact that, and I'm going to put it really simply, cycling is easier than walking. Now, anybody who's ever cycled knows that. That's why the cycle is also more fun. Well, for most people, for a lot of people, but it is easier than walking. Why? Because the cycle takes your weight and, and gives you speed without needing uh, the amount of effort that it would take to run or run extremely fast to go as fast as a cycle can go. Now, for a lot of disabled people, those particularly with mobility impairments, si uh, walking is as you know, is experienced as something that's difficult. That's what it says on the tin. If you have a, mob a mobility impairment, mobility is tricky. So uh, to realize that you can, by 
getting onto a cycle, you can make the you can make the energy you put into moving move you a lot further, a lot faster, is kind of magical. And uh, that's the kind that's the kind of thing of experience that we talk about in terms of when we say it's transformational. It literally is transformational. I can talk from experience of saying I can walk a few steps, but those steps are could be quite helpful if it's in an environment where you know I couldn't go in with my wheelchair but it's never pleasant it's a bit painful it's quite labored it's going to make me feel hot and bothered for me to get on my hand cycle and to whiz off down the road you I, it's hard to you know to to express the the the, the amazing power that that has on on me psychologically let alone uh, physically uh, so we absolutely need the world to understand that for a lot of us, our cycle is a mobility aid. It is, it has the same status, but more power than on our lives than a wheelchair would have or a mobility scooter would have. So disabled people who are not disabled and, and, and the law in particular and the law around us and in this country recognize the fact that a wheelchair or a mobility scooter are aids to mob the mobility of disabled people and therefore are given some particular recognition and are given particular uh, privileges, for example. So uh, as, a, as a wheelchair user or as a mobility scooter user, you would never be challenged uh, if you were going down the pavement or down through station concourse or through a, a shopping mall. But if your cycle is your mobility aid, and you equally cannot step out of it and push it. Nobody would ask somebody to go and push their, start pushing their mobility scooter, all the less so their wheelchair. But if you're using a, a tricycle or forbid the thought a bicycle, and it is your mobility aid and you cannot walk and walk and push it, uh, people don't understand that. It, it kind of blows their brain. And it actually, they, when somebody sees a, a, a person on a, cycle in a pedestrianized environment it pushes all their buttons because of course cycling in pedestrianized environment is illegal it's not allowed and there are people who break that law so it pushes at everybody's buttons and they go you've got to you know get off this pavement or you get a lot of aggression now one of my trustees one of our trustees at wills wellbeing kevin is uh, an amputee he has one leg and then uh, he either walks with two crutches or he cycles he doesn't need anything else but a, a two-wheeled bicycle, but he cannot walk his cycle. That is his experience. The, so the My Cycle, My Mobility Aid campaign is to try and uh, educate the public, educate also policy, policymakers, lawmakers, to the fact that cycles are, for some people, absolutely crucial mobility aids so it's a really crucial piece of education i guess that we are we are putting out there and and it's interesting it was suggest it's come out of conversations we had with politicians for example who said you know when we have that conversation we explain what i've just explained they pause and they go well you know i'd never thought about that nobody's ever said this to me you really need to make that point better known is is what somebody said to us you need to get articles in the press you need to read you know you need to put this message out because people will never have thought about it 
And as a disabled person who cycles, I thought, oh, well, I'd never thought about that. <laughs> I'd never thought about how important it is to actively go out there and change people's understanding of cycling really actively through the stories of disabled people. I mean, to me, that sounds like a fundamental part of Wheels for Wellbeing's work moving forward in terms of influencing and changing perceptions of cycling within the UK. I just want to quickly pick up on another area that you talked about before as being fundamental is around cycle parking. And you sort of talked before about how cycle parking and making it inclusive and accessible is almost more influential than actually improving the space and the environments that to cycle in when you're looking to encourage a more, more inclusive cycling. Could you explain why inclusive cycle parking design is such an important part of the picture? Yes, I mean, I'm not sure it's, it's more important, but it's as important as improving the cycling environment. Um, you, obviously, if you can't cycle down the road, you can't cycle down the road, but if, if you can, if you're equipped to, uh, and and the infrastructure will let you through, um, or you have the confidence to fight with the with the cars and 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 you can just go. Um, if you can't park your cycle at the end of your journey, uh, and you are somebody for whom it's your mobility aid, therefore you 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 can't go and find somewhere you know hundreds of meters down the road. You can't cycle. Um, so part, being able to physically park your cycle, uh, yeah, is crucial. If you can't, st- you know, stop and safely leave your bike, and and a lot of us who, those who who cycle non-standard cycles, uh, that simple fact means that you have in, had to invest a huge amount of of your funds um, into that cycle. So you absolutely have to store it in a in a secure, even more secured uh, way than than a standard bicycle that you might have picked up from a local shop or even secondhand, um, which you could replace with, you know, 150 quid, 200 quid, whatever. You're talking for us more, for disabled people who cycle non-standard cycles, you're looking at probably minimum of several hundred pounds uh, for a very simple trike, say 300 pounds, maybe minimum, that would be a very basic trike. Most people will uh, have to have spent more like a thousand and then very quickly it's a thousand five hundred, it might be two thousand pounds. My combo, which is a wheelchair plus a clip-on hand cycle, which is electric assist, the whole lot you're talking about uh, probably in the region of about eight thousand pounds. Inclusive cycle parking design is a, a whole area of, of work that we're also getting involved in because once people have real have understood that okay they need to provide for that, then they start asking us questions. Oh, so how? What are what are the standards? So back to LTN 120. There's a little bit about it in there, um, but really crucially now we're at the stage where we need product uh, manufacturers to be working with us. Uh, us, uh, I mean disabled people in general, us as an organisation if they wish to, uh, to uh, really get to the bottom of what they can design in order uh, to meet the needs of uh, disabled people. And of course the needs of disabled people are varied, (laughs) so you need something quite um, modular I guess. Um, And again it's not just for disabled people, it's for cargo cyclists, whoever they are. Some disabled people are cargo cyclists, a lot of parents and a lot of business people use cargo cycles similarly are going to be wider longer heavier more expensive and have similar requirements to disabled people's cycles for for parking 
Just on one of the points you mentioned there about the financial cost of non-standard cycles, I mean, some of the research that we've done around non-commercial cargo cycles really highlighted how expensive the equipment can be. And one of the recommendations was to make these cycles more affordable through grants and subsidies. Do you see a role for these types of initiatives in making non-standard cycles more affordable? Oh, crucial, absolutely crucial. And we were thrilled to read in Gear Change that a, a, a strand of work was going to be about making cargo cycles and electric cycles uh, more financially accessible. We absolutely want to engage with uh, people in government who are leading on that work and, and, and we will um, try and do that because, um, it, yeah, the, the fun, the, as, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the one of the top three barriers to cycling is cost for disabled people. I mean, fewer disabled people are in work than non-disabled people. And um, also um, plenty of, of uh, disabled people are self-employed, can't access the cycle to work scheme or don't work enough hours, don't earn enough money to... So at the moment, it was a bit one, one dimensional, the, 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 the subsidies for, for cycles, uh, and it was all linked to work. And we really want to work with um, the, the government to, to open up subsidies and e-bikes, e-cycles and cargo cycles um, are also part of the inclusive cycling mix uh, for disabled people anyway. So it absolutely needs to be opened up um, to make cycling affordable as, as an option. And finally, it, it certainly seems as if overcoming the challenges faced by disabled cyclists will require a very strategic approach. And uh, we've spoken about how you are a relatively small organisation, but one that has made a big impact and has led to Wheels of Wellbeing being recognised as an industry leader within the field of inclusive cycling. Given your size, how important have partnerships been in communicating your message and what is the value of further collaboration moving forward? Oh, it's been absolutely crucial. And to be honest, it's been... I like that word transformational, but it is it, partnerships have helped us transform our work and transform uh, the way we are able to impact on, on the world. So partnership is part of our is in our DNA, basically, is the way we work. We have been able to work, for example, with uh, Phil Jones Associates, for example, Phil, Phil Jones himself, uh, who is a crucial person in the world of um uh, helping governments and authorities uh, sort of reshape uh, shape their their guidelines and their policies uh, around cycling, um, and he's been extremely influential in helping us to well informing us about the processes that go uh, and the the sort of timetables for changing uh, guidance and influencing guidance and policy, and he's helped us get a, a you know a foot in the door so to speak or a wheel in the door um, to to talk to the right people to be at the right tables and to put our message out so identifying also people like Brian Deegan who was just you know putting us in contact with him when he was about to start revising the London cycling design standards back in um, the the days of uh, uh, Boris Johnson and, and, and Andrew Gilligan in, in City Hall, um, again extremely uh, influential partnership or, or other partnerships. One I, I really must talk about is partnership with Sustrans. That's been over the a really good number of years now with uh, under the helm of, of different CEOs um, uh, of Sustrans who've really listened and who've really picked up on the fact that our message really chimed with their overall mission and could really help them better understand the whole 
uh, element of, of work they hadn't really been uh, picking up on back in back a few years ago and then now uh, we have well yeah they, they've basically really facilitated us coming into some of their work uh, we worked with their for example their London's uh, team on the quiet ways program uh, but also they invited us to their uh, review uh, stakeholders group for the National Cycle Network review that we were really able to influence those recommendations, for example, the recommendation that 16,000 plus barriers are going to be removed from the National Cycle Network. And now we continue to be involved on, on the uh, implementation strategic group. As you said, we're a tiny organisation. There is no way we could influence um, uh, the in, the actual infrastructure on the ground in across the UK in the way that having influenced the Path for Everyone report and, the, and, it, and its recommendation and the work of Sustrans is going to have an impact literally across the whole of the UK. It's, it's fantastic to be able to be to have doors opened by other organisations in a way that we couldn't. We might be able to identify something they hadn't and help them to um, to work more strategically at their larger level, at national level or, or regional level. And and it's a win-win situation for, for us. And we, we're not the kind of organisation that wants to you know get the credit for everything, keep keep everything to ourselves. It is not the way we work. We work about we, we want to change, we want all of us and everybody to be changing the, the world for everyone. <laughs> and, and we, you know, we're neither proprietary nor, nor, and we're realistic really in terms of what we could achieve and we couldn't do it without um, influencing and partnering with people. So it's, it's a very exciting um, uh, process and I have to say professionally extremely uh, satisfying for, for me as an individual. Um, I, I, I can say, I, I think in the last 10 years, I've had more influence over the world than, than ever, you know, for the whole of my previous career, uh, which was a lot about headbanging. Um, this is extremely satisfying in, in, in how much people who've had their eyes open by statements or hearing a story or whatever, have then been really willing to work with us uh, and, and, and have created change at their at their level i think what you said there is really testament to both the the importance of these collaborative uh, sort of partnerships and and the fact they can amplify your impact and, and and your voice and your influencing kind of factor but also to the the strengths of yourself as an individual as a director but also as the organization in terms of being able to communicate that and like you said you've got to this point where you're kind of really are at the top of the industry in terms of the, the influencing and, and leadership so that's really powerful thank you very much for joining us today isabel it's uh, it's been great to learn more about inclusive cycling and we're really looking forward to following the organization's work moving forward well thank you for giving me the opportunity and uh yeah thanks for uh, for having me if you want to find out more about wheels for wellbeing you can visit their website at wheelsforwellbeing.org.uk or you can follow them on twitter instagram and facebook by using at wheels for well find out more about fair city and our work on twitter at fair underscore city and on the website faircity.org stay tuned for another edition of streetside talks coming soon and thank you for listening